kindly just introduce yourself so that the public will understand who you are and what you do and what brings you to the table today. Thank you very much, moderator. I am honored this afternoon to join the distinguished team. As you have said, my name is David Deritu, and I work at IPOA as the Director of Complaints Management and Legal Services, Independent uh, Policing Oversight Authority. Thank you very much. We will next have Ms. Emily Treyer from the Attorney General's Office kindly take the floor and let us know where it is you plug in to the topic today. Thank you so much, Chair, for this um, invitation, opportunity. As you've heard, my name is Emily Chua. I'm the Director of Legal Affairs at the Office of the Attorney General and Department of Justice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Dr. Dwar, we hear a lot about you and your big role as a government pathologist. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and let, break it down a little bit <clears throat> for us, what you do and why you are part of the panel today? Okay, I'm Dr. Dr. Johansen. I'm a forensic pathologist. I'm also a doctor. I head the division called Forensic and Pathology Services at the Ministry of Health. And uh, my main duty is uh, doing autopsies, presenting uh, my reports in court as an expert witness. Also investigate uh, deaths uh, which are suspicious, deaths which are homicide, accidents. And also we usually partake to work with other stakeholders, including police, IMLO, IPOA, in, uh, in all this that we do. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming. And we have then Mr. Karioki Karanja. Thank you, Chair. As you've just uh, correctly said, I'm Karioki Karanja. I'm an advocate of the High Court of Kenya. I'm a practitioner. I practice law in the name and style of Karioki Karanja and Company Advocates. Previously, I have worked with the International Justice Mission. Thank you very much. Do we have Njoki in? Yes, I am. Okay, wonderful. I gave a brief just about who you are, what you do, but this is time for you to tell the public, in your own words, why it is you are part of this panel and what you will offer. Uh, my name is Njoki Gashanja from Gedharai Social Justice Centre. I also sit at the Social Justice Centre's working group and the steering committee. Um, the Social Justice uh, Centers is actually a movement of uh, is a network of human rights defenders, mostly uh, from the informal settlements. We are getting to a place where people are tired, uh, where everywhere that we go, this history of policing in our country, this colonial leftover, this militarization and weaponization of social class, um, will not really be tolerated as it was before. And the signs of the times are there. So as we get Mr. Karanja in and as we start uh, really marinating over the issues and what the impact of something that looks so mundane, but yet really will be the reason that we can look at a police force, we can look at the justice system and have faith once more because that faith has eroded over the years. We'll get it from someone who does interact with the justice system as part of their everyday job and place it for us, Mr. Karanja. Karibu. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I will start with where Madam Chua has left it and, uh, about the implementation of this Coroner's Act. It surprises me that the government will only do what they want to do. Uh, there are several ways of dealing with the problems that are in the way of implementation of this act. Number one, something like what we are saying, that it must fall um, under the CS of justice, and the CS of justice 
does not exist. It is the duty of the Attorney General's office to ensure that that part is amended to read whoever should be in charge. How long does it take to take a registration in Parliament? It is actually a subsidiary registration. We've seen them do amendments in Parliament, even at night, if they want. So what we are saying is, these are just excuses. And in terms of budget, the government will always have budget for their priorities. So the question is, is this a priority for the government? We've seen acts of Parliament signed at night and implemented the following day. You've seen what the government want to do, they can do. So we are asking, is this a priority to the government? And my quick uh, observation is, it's not. It's not a priority to the government. It's not a priority to the office of the Attorney General. And in terms of such cases, they are saying, if you file a notice of appeal, that's not an appeal. And what I would call upon is the office of the Attorney General to look at it as a matter of urgency, as they have looked at other issues. So I think for me, uh, it's like a beautiful act. It's like somebody building a safe house, then feeding that safe house with the smoke. How does that person expect you to live in a safe house? So I think we must bring, dissect these issues and say, what is the problem? The problem is lack of political will in the government. If they wanted, then they would have implemented it. I've looked at this act and somebody asked um, how it is going to work without the political will. Number one, when these kind of offenses are, um, are committed, at most of these um, offenses that are necessitated, this coroner's act. Because we must start where was the problem? What were we trying to cure? What was the evil that this act wanted to cure? It was not to cure medical negligence. It was to cure, uh, to cure as uh, Mr. Karid started. It was to cure these kind of extrajudicial killings that were so rampant in the country. But when it came to the uh, making of this act, I'm finding it's a buffet of things. Even medical negligence is here. The, the cases of um, these, uh, whatever, um, medical doctors who are operating and uh, people die in their facilities, it is the coroner general who will investigate such kind of deaths. I don't think that was the intention of this act. And that's why I'm saying this is like a safe house that is full of smoke. And I think we can make it clear and say what is our problem and what is the solution. And as I come back home to the issue that we are having, the issue of extrajudicial killing, and which has cost, uh, which is, has cost uh, for, for, the, uh, for the court to implement this act. The first people to respond when such extrajudicial killings happen are the officers who committed the offense. Reason being, they are the ones who have committed the offense. So they will be the first responders. Even when I see this act saying that these officers or the police officers will be there to secure the scene, awaiting the coroner general, then I'm asking myself, who are they? They that are waiting for the coroner uh, general to arrive. Are they the suspects? What are they doing in the scene? Are they not likely to interfere with the scene? Because mostly what we see in such instances is when police officers commit these offenses, the first reaction is to self-preserve. Self-preserve by interfering with the scene. They brand uh, weapons, they interfere with the scene. And that is the kind of problem we are having all over. And I have a problem with Section 5 of the Coroner's Service Act because it says that does not stop police officers from doing their work. And part of the police work, as per the National Police Act, is to investigate crime. And some of these killings are being treated by the police as crime, but they will cover them up. 
So I think it, there is need to be very, very clear as to the boundary between or the independence of the corona general as they do their work to avoid interference. Uh, the interference we've been seeing has really delayed the cases. Most of the cases uh, that involve police do take so long, not only to conclude in court, but to get their way in court. Most of the cases are investigated between two to three years before they see the right of the day in court, before an officer takes plea. A very few cases that we've seen police officers taking plea uh, immediately. And one of the cases that is um, quite near home is the, uh, the case of Titus and Gamau or the Katitu case, which happened at Gedurai 45. That case really took wrong. And even when it went to court, the judges made very um, clear observations that the, the, the judge was talking of what he was uh, they were calling bruco, uh, the blue code of silence, where police officers never provide incriminating information about their colleagues for self-preservation. And this is just to ensure that the dead will not get justice. And this is what the judges were saying. With respect, we cannot fully agree with the Ranet judge, a judge's observation that there was an active attempt to sweep the cause of deceased death under the carpet and in death deny, uh, in death deny him and his family just. And this is what is happening. So when we say that we can delay such kind of a beautiful, the implementation of such kind of a beautiful uh, act, then that is progressing impunity. And, uh, and also another question as to where these, the, corona, uh, the corona general should be. I'm asking, and, and with all respect to Johansson, will he be another Johansson or dual? Will he be working with Johansson or dual? Will he be working with Ipoa? These coroner's general, does he require police to investigate? Because what we've seen, even as Ipoa are independent, we've seen sometimes they rely on police for investigations. Like when exhibits are taken for examination, ballistic examination, who's doing it? The police. So I'm asking myself, this office of the coroner's general, who will it be working with? With the police? With Ipoa? How sure are we that it will be placed in the right place? That it will not be choked by being denied uh, the, the finances and, and the budget. So for, for me, uh, uh, even as I speak as an advocate and also as a Kenyan, it's worrying that things that concern the common Mwananchi, that such kind of a delay can happen. I, I know if, if it was another act, people would be uh, pushing for it to be implemented. And uh, so I would call upon the Attorney General not to give excuse, but to come up with a legal way of overcoming the challenges, not just to say that the appeal is pending. We've seen appeals that are really quickened where the Attorney General is interested. They, they, they are done within one year because sometimes uh, um, the, just, the justice system is working. We can't say that the justice system is, is not working and the wheels, the wheels have are halted. It's working. So I would call upon the office of the Attorney General to make sure that this act is implemented. I would also call upon the justice actors to come together and put pressure so that this act is implemented. And if there are areas that need amendment, I would call upon uh, our members of parliament to come up with ways of overcoming this by doing the minor amendments that may be there. And uh, for me, those, those will be my observations. And I feel that we are in the, right, in the right time to implement. We are actually ready to implement this act. We needed to have implemented it like yesterday. Thank you very much um, for that clarion call, Mr. Karanja. And we'll come back to you later because there are quite a number of questions that have come up. Really wanting to seek uh, what challenges you actually face on the ground. You have, you know, illuminated some of them in terms of tampering of evidence, but just how difficult your job then becomes without an office that is semi-autonomous. And, and you bring up some really good points. Will there be independence in the way the coroner general functions? Or will it be a cosmetic kind of role that's um, really there 
for, you know, to, to, to fix agendas that might be required um, for, for, for the powers that be to look good. Uh, we do understand that we don't stand alone as a country, that we are part of ratifying so much else that's out there. Uh, therefore, if other bills are passed within record time, and if we say record time is even a year, what stops this act? And you bring up the issue of, is there political will? And I wish there were politicians or a politician at least to be able to answer to that. Um, as much as Ms. Choi, of course, it sits in your docket, there's also the political arm of things. So we want to re really come back. And I know there'll be more and more questions around that. But before that, and, and you get your mention there from... Uh, Mr. Karanja, Dr. Dwar, and he says, with all due respect, will you have to serve your masters and, and, and somehow just work within the limits you have, uh, despite the role and the job description that exists within the Ministry of Health? So, so really, over to you um, to be able to just give us an idea what your world looks like in relation to this, and whether this office, more importantly, will be complementary to you, your task, the task of your colleagues, and the worthy office you actually hold. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'll just uh, start by talking about uh, my work as a government pathologist and the framework of my activity and my colleagues. Uh, this office of the government pathologist is within uh, the Ministry of Health, and um, it's a division, a small division, the Ministry of Health. We are about seven pathologists in the Nairobi who work in the division to perform this duty. One of our duties are uh, doing autopsies, mainly investigation of deaths. And these deaths include uh, accidents, suicide, homicide, and the sudden unexpected deaths. These are deaths which are most, mostly usually of a judicial uh, importance and interest. And uh, we, our activity are uh, anchored on uh, a section of the law, a criminal procedure code, Section 385 to 388, in which uh, when someone dies, uh, the police report to the magistrates who request for an, an, an inquest on to the cause of cause of death. The act also empower any medical officer to do autopsy, meaning that uh, it doesn't matter how the, your level of, uh, of 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 education. Also, apart from uh, investigation of death. Remember, you know that uh, we have people who are, who are injured and they acquire P3 and all that. That's still form uh, under my office, whereby individuals who have been uh, sexually assaulted, individuals who have been uh, injured by other people can uh, request uh, for a P3 so that now an expert will examine them and testify in court as an expert. We also do policy issues. We have a lot of policies as part of uh, our work in the ministry. But uh, remember that uh, the Ministry of Health is devolved, meaning that uh, we are mainly, we don't do service. So we have uh, doctors in the counties. There's a disconnect between us and them because uh, they are working semi-independently. And uh, this also reduces on uh, the service provision. And uh, I mean, it uh, dilutes the service. We, we can also talk of success story because uh, remember in the past, there were a lot of outcry when the government pathology does an autopsy, there are issues, there used to be questions on uh, whether there's some form of cover-up. But as we can all agree, we've uh, achieved a lot in the recent past. Why? Because uh, we've uh, worked uh, with multiple stakeholders, 
in uh, all these investigations, we work closely with police, homicide division, the at the NPS. We work with the government chemists. We also work with the human rights organization. I'm sure the stakeholders who are here can attest to that. So that uh, we try our best to ensure that uh, whatever we do, not uh, clouded in mystery. And uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot of uh, credibility in what we do. Um, what are the shortfalls in the, in the system as it is today? Of course, I've talked about devolution. Here we are at the national government and they are devolved units. And they work uh, semi-independently. At times, we don't know what they do. At times, uh, they do autopsies, which, are, which are, raise a lot of questions, which has also led to us going to the ground and doing estimations and finding that they probably there's some compromise. There's also a poor accountability system. Remember, someone does an autopsy and uh, the questions about it, and uh, there's no way to redress uh, these questions. Poor training, of course, we have uh, pathologists who are mainly trained in general pathology. There are few who have done forensic medicine, which uh, fall into this service. But majority are medical officers with no training at all, and they are the ones who do majority of autopsies out there. Poor funding, we don't have any funding, and uh, you know that uh, for there to be a very good service, they must be they must be well funded. I've had stories of. Uh, my colleagues in the counties there where someone does an autopsy and required to go to court. When they go to their supervisors, they are told that there's no funds for that. So you have to find your way to court. This also reduces the number of cases that uh, are, uh, I mean, the, the doctors go to court. So now here we have this uh, National Corona Service Act. And uh, I don't want to repeat what has been mentioned before. Of course, I'd like to say that I'm very happy with the presentation from the AG's office that something is going on, we've all been in the dark. But uh, only now that I've known that there's something going on. Of course, uh, the service uh, with the act, it will be a very good uh, uh, act because uh, it will provide for a comprehensive legal framework under which death investigations will be carried out. Remember, the current framework is inadequate and exists under Criminal Procedure Code, Section 385 to 388, as I've, I've uh, talked about. It will also establish le legitimacy and, independent, and an independent office in order to increase public confidence in the system. We know about the outcries that have been there, uh, historical. Remember a story about uh, Robert Uko, who a pathologist uh, claimed that uh, he shot himself and burned himself, always haunting us. But even myself, whenever I visit my duty, people remind me of that. We've had uh, several cases also, which... Uh, lead to a question about uh, how independent uh, the pathologists are. And uh, it's our hope that uh, with this service, this will be established, the independence and the credibility. Uh, of course, currently the death investigations are police-led and due to past incidents, there's been a lot of skepticism about uh, the whole process. The Act also has expanded the scope of uh, death to be investigated and improved post-mortem outcomes due to the fact that there will be improvement in infrastructure service and capacity. It's our hope that uh, we'll uh, be having a better infrastructure uh, under this act and this service. All of us know about city mortuary and how it is. It's a very, very poor place to do autopsies. It's uh, not even secure. It's a place where a body can easily disappear. I'm not saying that it disappear before, but it's easy to disappear. We need a place which is very, very secure. It will also improve capacity. I've talked about uh, the number of uh, forensic pathologists uh, in the country who are very few. And it's a hope that uh, with this service, uh, the capacity will be improved because of the funding, we'll be able to train more and more. We have all those other services like uh, toxicology. You know, when someone is poisoned, you need to take samples to go analyze. Histology, uh, someone has injury, you need to 
to look at the injuries under the microscope so that you can uh, date it, um, which are very poor. I'm sure with the service, we'll be able to improve in that. Uh, and other services, like an example is entomology. Entomology is a study of uh, you know, these maggots and the pupae that it can help you establish the time of death. Imaging. Imaging is x-ray, CT scans, all that. Some of these autopsies are better done after imaging, so this, the, the, the service will, will improve. We hope that uh, there'll be improved system of accounting for missing persons. We know that uh, every one of us have someone who just disappeared and has never been seen and they will never be found. Why? Uh, I know that in city mortuary, people are disposed and the, the system is not very, very good for accountability. And I'm sure we'll be able to improve that. Documentation, we have a police uh, 20, form 23A, which is, uh, I think is outdated. So I think we'll be able to review the tools. And they, of course, independent investigation of deaths in custody. And with the service, I'm sure there'll be funding coming from various sources, not ministry alone, not the government alone, and the, of course, other organizations who are interested in the investigation of death. Because they, uh, we will be told about the CS who will be in charge of it and not talk about it again. What I'd, I'd like to say that, uh, of course, uh, we need uh, a system of, uh, even, even as we are implementing the act, Amendments also, because we've had uh, many sources and many people who have uh, a lot of concern about, uh, I mean, the qualification of the coroner general, and they've uh, quoted other countries. An example is the uh, UK, where they are, they are coroners. And of course, uh, in, uh, in, in many jurisdictions, a coroner is supposed actually to be a judicial officer. When I talk about a judicial officer, what do I mean? Someone with a background training in law, Someone who, like in the UK, a, a coroner is actually supposed to be a retired judge. So we need to look into that also. A closer here in Uganda also have a coroner system, and they are also judicial officers. And they, those are things that we need to, to, to look at. So in um, summary, I think this, this act is long overdue, and they, we need to have it implemented as fast as possible. And to my view, uh, especially as someone who's uh, been a pathologist for over 10 years and I've seen what is there down there. I'm sure there's a need for improved services and uh, with this uh, act, we'll be able to improve uh, services uh, very greatly. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dur. And um, I think the positivity you bring to welcoming your colleagues into a different function, but very complementary to what you do, is, is, is actually a very encouraging. Because normally when you have systems in government that look the same and maybe people don't understand the difference, um, it's seen as competition. But the fact that you are actually on the ground saying we need these people, it's going to be an improvement all around. It'll be improvement to service delivery. It'll be improvement in the infrastructure an infrastructure that is shared by us as the public, as citizenry and citizenship that's sitting there that people pay taxes for. And, and, and that's wonderful to hear because I think we sometimes don't understand the scientific arm of how you bring evidence to court. We just see it purely from our probably Hollywood understanding when we watch our CSI series and we watch any of the other series that come to book because we rarely will meet a pathologist. We rarely will get an account or what media will bring to book, which of course is driven by their own journalistic agenda. So thank you for framing that. And we will come back um, with questions. And, I'd, and before I get to Joki, I really would like to tell you the feedback coming through is so positive. There's a lot of 
people talking about the timeliness of where we are. And uh, one of the comments that really struck me is that you are really being very, very genuine in your discussion and you're being very open to what the discussion is. Um, just quickly, and this will be just for you probably, um, Madam Chair, to, to take into account, that at least two people, uh, someone calling themselves Dainty D and another calling themselves Juma Olago, are, are bringing in the fact that there is a supplementary budget that can that's coming up in, I think, September of this year. And why is that not a good place to actually institute what it is that you need in terms of policy? So you can answer to that when we come back to you on the plenary. Um, and Njoki, welcome on board. We are really, really honored that you will be here speaking for millions of us who don't get this opportunity. And um, Gidurai was already mentioned in part of this discussion with one of the cases that have been highlighted out there. But but bring, bring the ground up to us and, and, and make us really understand what it is like for the families out there that you adjudicate for and that you fight for and where it is the challenges um, that are faced will be answered to by this particular office and this um, act really being operationalized and coming to fruition. So welcome, Joki. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I would want to say that um, anytime we talk about uh, the Corona Service Act um, at the grassroots, we actually look at it as an answered prayer. I will give you a very good example of a very recent uh, case that we had um, during the curfew in Madare. There was a homeless man that um, was actually shot dead. Uh, and what resulted from that uh, was that uh, there was sporadic protests and, and, and people lit fires, all in an attempt to put away the, uh, the police officers who had, who had actually shot the homeless man. Because where we come from, we actually understand that uh, whenever the police officers maybe uh, gun down someone, they are very quick to actually uh, make that scene of crime a place that you cannot go to as they clear the evidence off. So when that man was killed, people came out and they lit bonfires and they surrounded that body to actually ensure that those police officers who had actually gunned down that man were not the police officers who were who are going to take away the body, you know, uh, so that justice is served. I heard Ipoa mention about the cases that we've given them. I will tell you, and they can confirm this, that when Yasin, uh, Yasin Moyo, the boy from Kemaiko, was shot uh, at their balcony um, and was taken to Mamalusi for surgery, the people who actually took the bullet were the family. And they held on to it until they handed it over to Ipoa because they understood that that was their only chance of getting justice. So that that, that is basically the picture that we have here on the ground, that it, it means that if there's no community, if there's no human right defender to actually preserve the scene of crime, then it means the evidence will be tampered with, you know. Uh, it is very, it is very, very sad that 
the perpetrators, the police officers in this particular instance are the, the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Because how then would you expect someone who actually committed that crime to see through the process of justice, you know? And, and I like what Karyoki Karanja actually expressed, like he totally read my mind, because uh, that we have this three years down the line not implemented is not really because, I mean, when we talk about uh, the reason we're not implementing it is because we don't have a cabinet secretary of justice, really. We've never had that. We did not see that when we were, we were trying to, to see that, that that is our stalemate right now. It is because there is no goodwill, there is no political will whose interest is being covered. And more and more, as we're covering the um, extrajudicial killings, as we're doing our research, we are realizing that it is systemic violence. It is actually intentional. It is meant to actually contain a certain group of people that come from the informal settlements to instill fear, you know. So most of these extrajudicial killings are actually sanctioned by the system, you know. I will give you a case in point, uh, a killer cop that has given us headaches, Rashid, Aipoa has over 30 cases and they confirmed that they've uh, taken these cases to, um, to the ODPP. But why is it that someone like Rashid has not been brought to book? You know, so these are the questions that we keep on asking. You can imagine that you have lost a loved one through extrajudicial killings. And then you have the burden of trying to, to, to maintain uh, the evidence so that the, they get justice at the end of the day. You know, we uh, in in that case about Katito, we were in court for for, for so long. Uh, it got to a point families lost hope, you know. So, and, and it was basically because of evidence. Some of the uh, reports were missing. At some point, uh, you, you'd go to cases and you told this report, uh, the police officers are supposed to bring this report and they've not brought it. And so uh, the, the case cannot go on. And this uh, basically is what goes on in every court case where a police officer is um, is mentioned. And um, I, I would want to say that um, I also really needs to like uh, pull up their socks because every single time uh, they, 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 they have a case to answer, they will point particular like 10 cases, you know. But every single day in the ghettos, people are being killed. Evidence is being destroyed. Uh, evidence is being planted, you know. So uh, the coroners, uh, if, if this act was actually implemented, it would take a lot of burden out of the loved ones, out of uh, the, the community human rights defenders who not only have to now uh, seek legal redress and psychosocial support, but also have to make sure that evidence is not tampered with. So I, I'm really thinking that it's about time. It's about time that we actually have this discussion and push for the implementation of this. I, I will also want to comment on, on the council. Uh, as I was going through the act, I actually saw there was a part about the council. And just like I said that they had been left out, I think there's also the need to have people who work in the community in that particular council, like uh, what the coaches' committees do, you know, where you have all stakeholders 
stakeholders so that you know what is not working and from what end is not working from you know because we we experience these things firsthand and so we will tell you that uh, it, it it does not make sense for a police officer to uh, to maintain a, a crime scene until the corona comes uh, comes to the ground. I mean, it is either them who committed that or their colleagues. So what make, what makes you think that they will uh, maintain that sin in, in a way it's not tampered until the corona gets there? But if there was um, the involvement of the community and maybe uh, the human rights defenders and human rights advocates, it would make the situation um, a bit, you know, a bit tricky for them to actually even want to tamper with evidence. So this is a very timely conversation and I think we, we should not be asking ourselves whether it's the Ministry of Health or whether it's uh, the Cabinet uh, Secretary for Justice that does not exist. It is whose interest are we trying to cover because you will also realize that the biggest victims of these uh, people uh, who come from, from the ghettos, from the low class, it is not uh, the, the, the people who, who come from the high end you know, so that is why they, there would be laxity in trying to push because are we their priority? Really, are we their priority? So those, those are some of the questions that really come to my mind every time we talk about the Corona Service Act. Thank you, Njoki. And um, I must say particularly that last part is, is, is very, very moving um, because this, this weaponization of uh, Poverty of what is being seen is is uh, you know something that we see around the world, but we we see this in Kenya more than ever. I one of the biggest things I believe our country is going to have to grapple with is not even tribalism; it's the classism that is going to be our biggest biggest cancer, quote unquote. With no disrespect to the disease, but um, without us looking at this. I dare say we're going to have to be sitting here trying to cure a problem we can prevent by an act and by an act well put together. We're very fortunate to have the executive director of IMLU join us. So welcome, Mr. Peter Kiyama. Thank you very much for making the time, even though we thought you wouldn't make it. And I think it would be worthy for you to jump in because, you know, you really were there from the start. And, and I'm looking at the comments on the chat and talking about the act as an orphan. So bring this to light for us and um, continue with the passion Joki has spoken with, which actually is able to illuminate to us if this problem was in the higher echelons of our society, would we still be having this webinar? Would we still be talking about the issues at hand, Madam Chair, if it was something that was hitting home much more to the Attorney General and that cadre? If we were talking with IPOA, if it was dealing with your cadre at the top or the top cadre in any of the other agencies that we as Kenyans depend on to ensure that we can actually have sanctity of life in this country? And that's a question to all of you.